0: We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. chapter 15 this morning. Acts chapter 15 as we continue our series on the book of Acts. As you turn there, I need to mention that we have a ton of events, great events, really impactful, important events coming up here at Emmaus. Uh, there's the Emmaus Institute starts this month. Women's Bible study starts this month as well. Next Sunday we have a church picnic right after second service in Mackin Park here in North DC, As well as later in the evening we have a global outreach gathering with the chaplains, who are partners of Emmaus from Rhode Island. I believe there's a, a location for that that's been nailed down. So, so in light of all these, here's what I want to challenge you and ask you to do. I want to challenge you to put eyes on the weekly announcement emails that Caleb Hume sends out for the church at the start of every week. Be sure to open that email. Uh, put your eyes on the information. Read it carefully, and get what you need information-wise, so that you can know what's going on here at Emmaus. If you don't know how to, if you don't know that you're getting those emails, or if you know you're not getting them, uh, you can sign up to receive those by going to slash next. right. Well, let's recap where we've been in the Book of Acts. Over the past few weeks, we've been looking at the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. We've seen how they went from place to place, preaching the gospel, making disciples, starting brand new churches, and everywhere that Paul and Barnabas go, everywhere that they travel, there are actually a couple of common themes that just keep coming up over and over again. The first theme that comes up is that we see people believing Jesus Christ. There are conversions. In every town that Paul and Barnabas visit, people believe their message. Salvation comes to the lost, through the proclamation of the gospel. At the same time, there's a second theme that keeps coming up. And we need to keep this theme in mind as well. It's that Paul and Barnabas, wherever they go, they are persecuted. They find their message is resisted in some form or another. With this, Acts is reminding us over and over that the gospel not only generates salvation, it also generates resistance. It not only advances the kingdom of God, it also provokes the kingdom of darkness. And up until this point in the story of Acts, we've seen this resistance to the gospel coming from outside the church comes from the unbelieving world. But today in Acts chapter 15, we're going to see what happens when resistance to the scandalous truth of the gospel comes from inside the church. And historically, there are, of course, different ways that this can happen, but one of the main ways that we see it happening, one of the main ways that we see the gospel resisted from within the church is when the church tends toward legalism. Persecution may resist the gospel from the outside, but rigid legalism resists the gospel from the inside. And this is always a serious danger to the people of God, of course. We would lose interest in the gospel, that we would become bored with it and start prioritizing things that are, shall we say, more peripheral to the gospel. And from that point, it actually becomes very easy to start making things essential to salvation that are, in fact, not essential and When that happens, it's safe to say that the church has lost its way. This actually reminds me of a story about something that happened to me some years back. I was driving home from church one evening, and as I was driving down the road, I could see ahead of me down a ways that there was a car that had veered off the road and it had gone into a ditch. I could tell by the headlights of the car, their position, I could see that the car had actually flipped up on its side. So I quickly picked up my phone and I, I called 911. And I requested emergency assistance and then I pulled over and I ran down into the ditch to check on the driver of the vehicle. And as I got close, I could tell that. Inside, there was a woman who was very, very elderly. She was very frail. She was clearly not in good health. And so I asked her, I said, ma'am, are you okay? Are you hurt? And she said, well, I feel okay. I don't think I'm hurt. So I asked her, can you tell me what happened? Like, how did you end up down here in the ditch? She said, well, I was driving, and I sneezed, and now I'm down here. Even though know that story about the chuckle at the end, like I hoped it would, <laughs> um, it actually demonstrates something that's quite serious. Just like it took som- something as small as a sneeze to knock that woman off track so that she was on the side of it, so it is with the people of God. It only takes seemingly small adjustments to what we believe and preach to knock us way, way off, of course. In the world of aviation, there's something called the one in 60 rule. Maybe you've heard of the one in 60 rule. It's when the flight path of an aircraft is off by just one degree for a duration of 60 miles. When this happens, it means that the aircraft... Will end up a full mile from its destination. Now so you may be thinking, well, what's the big deal? It's just a mile. It doesn't seem like that much. Just consider what happened in 1979. An airplane full of sightseers crashed into a mountain in, Antar- in Antarctica because its flight path, the flight path of the plane they were flying, was off by just two. 279 people When it comes to the gospel, small changes can be deadly serious. Okay. Tweak the good news just a couple of degrees, and before you know it, the church is in the ditch of legalism. Because once you start adding things to the gospel, once you start making changes to the gospel, you lose the gospel. That's the central issue that arises here in Acts chapter 15. Let's go to the text. We'll begin in verse 1. Read with me. But some men came down from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. Some believers who belonged to a party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So here in these opening verses of Acts chapter 15, we are seeing the threat of grace the threat, grace. It's often true that grace is a threat. It's a threat to legalistic control, it's, it's a threat to religious gamesmanship. Because the moment that the grace of God comes into the picture, it disrupts the status quo. And I can't help but wonder if that's what is underlying what's happening here in Acts 15. It says that some men came from Judea. They came from Jerusalem, actually. They came to Antioch. Verse 26 of chapter 14, where we left off last week, says that that's where Paul and Barnabas were. They were in Antioch. After they completed their missionary journey, they remained no little time with the disciples in Antioch. These men came from Judea. They were teaching the Gentile Brothers in Antioch, unless you are circumcised according to the Mosaic custom, you cannot be saved. Now notice some things about this. First, notice that these men were teaching the brothers. That's what it says. They were teaching those who already belonged to the church. These Christians in Antioch, they were already children of God. They were already part of the family and yet all of a sudden that is being called into question because look, they're being told that salvation comes with extra terms and conditions the gospel comes with an asterisk you Gentiles you you didn't read the fine print and after all this happened after the spirit was given to Cornelius and his household after the, the multicultural church in Antioch had been founded, after Paul and Barnabas' missionary journey that took them all over the Mediterranean world, after all of that, there is still one more hurdle the Gentiles must clear. And this makes sense if you think about it. In a way, it makes sense, because as far as the Pharisees were concerned, if you wanted to be part of the covenant that the God of Israel had made with his people, circumcision was required. This is in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. You have to do something with it. It goes all the way back to to Abraham in Genesis chapter 17. It was in the Law of Moses, Leviticus 12.3. Says that every newborn baby boy had to be circumcised on the eighth day. So, so you can see why this matters so much to the Pharisees. You can see why it's important to them. Let's not be unfair to them. Let's not be unfair. This arrangement that circumcision was required, this arrangement had been ingrained into them their entire lives. It'd be really difficult to give up something that is so. Fundamental to your identity. And yet at the same time, the Pharisees wanted to be on mission with the God of Israel, the God they claimed to be serving and following. If they were going to do that, they needed to change their thinking in some significant ways. One commentator shows us just how significant this is. He, he says that the problem with the Pharisees is that they have failed to grasp The radical change in God's dealings with the nations brought about by the coming of Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the issue here. That's the issue. It's an issue of the Pharisees not being aligned with the mission of God as it was unfolding in Christ. They didn't understand that it was Christ who had fulfilled the law for us. So that we can relate to God, not on the basis of what we do outwardly by by keeping the law, but on the basis of what he is doing inwardly. The circumcision of the heart. This should have been clear to the Pharisees. It was plain to them. It was a self-evident fact by this point. Because remember, the gift of the Holy Spirit had already been given. That happened back in Acts chapter 10. So the Pharisees, they can say the word circumcision all they want, but at some point, you're just Michael Scott declaring bankruptcy. <laughs> it doesn't change anything. It doesn't, it doesn't change what's happening. And this brings them into conflict with Paul and Barnabas in Antioch. They have it out. Verse 2. Paul and Barnabas have no small dissension and debate with these men from Jerusalem. Now you can see there that we don't have details about how this debate looked. It doesn't give us details about what was said in the debate, but it's probably along the lines of what we see in the book of Galatians. Because the entire book of Galatians is is addressing the very problem that comes up here in Acts chapter 15. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing of faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, or are you now being perfected in the flesh? Mm-hmm. Paul's not asking those questions because he's unaware of the answer. He knows the answer. That's why he's asking the question. He knows that it is impossible to be perfected in the flesh. It is impossible to receive the spirit through works of the law. And Paul actually reserves his harshest words for the people who were requiring circumcision. He says to the Pharisees that while they're at it, I wish they would just emasculate themselves. If you guys love circumcision so much, then why not really commit? Right? Go big or go home. Now, that may sound a little harsh to us. We might be thinking, it sounds like Paul's taking it a little far. Is he having a bad day or what? But Paul recognized it. He recognized that this issue goes to the very heart of the mission of God because it goes to the very heart of the gospel itself. For Paul, it's like, if every, if everything that we have been doing, everything that we have been out there toiling for, all of it is for nothing, we don't stand up to this. If salvation by grace alone is pushed out of the church by legalism, then we have abandoned Jesus Christ and his finished work. That's why Paul is so aggressive. And it's why he goes to Jerusalem with Barnabas. They travel to the very heart of the controversy. Look at what happens. We'll reread verse 5, and then we'll continue to read. Several verses after. Verse 5 says that some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they were. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind, may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles, who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from the whole. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled and from blood, and from ancient generations. Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So, we've seen the threat of grace, that grace is a threat to religious status quo. Now in these verses, we see the decision for grace. The Jerusalem council faces a decision. It's a decision of whether they will be faithful to the gospel. This is a do or die situation. Here's how it goes down. Paul and Barnabas come to Jerusalem. The Pharisees double down, they come in and and they say to the group, they are gathered in Jerusalem, they say, the Gentiles must be circumcised, and we must order them, command them to keep the law of Moses. Now notice, notice that the Pharisees really gravitate toward phrases like, you cannot and you must. Legalistic people often do. Those are some of their favorite words. This puts up a huge red flag for the men in the room who have been laying everything on the line for the mission of God, for Paul and Barnabas, for Peter. For them, this is a hill worth dying on. They have been pouring out their blood and their sweat and their tears to see the gospel advance. They've seen thousands of people come to Christ. They've seen new churches started all over the Mediterranean world, and they're like, we're willing to give our lives for this got the scars to prove it. Listen to what we've seen. Let us tell you what we've experienced. And Peter gives his testimony. He gives a testimony about how he saw the Holy Spirit poured out on the Gentiles. Verse 9. He says, God made no distinction between us and them. God pours out His Spirit on whoever He wants. Whoever pleases him, he he cleanses the heart of any person who will come to him with the empty hands of faith, regardless of their background. And so because of this, Peter asks, why are you placing this yoke on them? Why are you placing this on them when you know full well that we can't even bear it ourselves? In fact... Our people have been trying for centuries to bear this heavy yoke of the law, and it has only yielded failure after failure after failure. The history of Israel will attest to this. So Peter's argument here, it shows why we as a church must resist legalism. We need to resist it with every fiber. is that it places impossible burdens on the backs of people who are sinful and weak to begin with. It only leaves us with a more pronounced sense of failure. Peter flat out admits this. We need to do the same. So let's do that. Let's, let's get honest here for a moment. Maybe if you're honest with yourself, you're honest with the Lord who is searching your heart right now you know that you have come into this place just exhausted by evil. you're weary in your bones because you've been trying your best to hold your religious veneer together but you are coming to the realization that this yoke is a yoke you simply cannot bear it's crushing you it's breaking your back You don't have the strength to keep going. But at the same time, there's a voice in you. It's deep inside of you. It's a voice of unrelenting accusation. It's a voice of constant criticism. You know the one, it's the little voice in your head that uses words like you cannot, and you must. It's a voice of condemnation that never, ever lets you Yes, It's always cracking the whip. Get to work. Do better. Earn your key. God is losing patience with you. He's tolerated you until now, but at some point you're just dead weight. And if you don't perform, it's going to cut you loose. Have you ever heard Has it been ringing in your head lately? Has it been keeping you awake? That's you. You need to hear today that voice, not the voice of Jesus. What's not that grace, the law, that's the voice of legalism barking orders at you, placing a yoke on your back that you were never meant to bear, and you need to recognize that voice for what it is. Because it's drowning out the voice of the one who offers you a better yoke. The voice of grace sounds more like this. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I give you rest. My yoke and learn from it. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. And my yoke is easy. My word is light. That's what the voice of grace sounds like. It's a breath of fresh air. It doesn't beat you down. No, it, it puts wind in your sails. It's like you hear those words and you can just. Exhale and collapse into the kind arms of Jesus. So listen, to listen, and receive His easy yoke, because His is the voice that you need to hear of every other. It's also the voice of the world needs to hear. There's brokenness and exhaustion all around us. There's sin and there's evil and there's the pain that they cause here in Kansas City you walk out of those doors it's going to be right there waiting for you it also extends to the far reaches of the globe where nations that you and I have never set foot in remain untouched by the gospel of grace and it's been God's plan all along to reach those nations to reach those peoples with the gospel that's what James is getting at in verses 16 and 17 he quotes from the prophecy of Amos In Amos, the book of Amos, we see Israel being confronted for its sin. The people were habitually, chronically sinning against God. They were an ethical and moral train wreck. And God was getting ready to punish them for this, to to discipline them, by sending them into exile. Before long, they would be cut off from the promised land they would be brought into a foreign land from that point their future would feel like it was totally in question they'd be stranded on what felt like a different planet and they'd be left to wonder what's going to come of us what's going to happen to us God speaks to the prophet Amos so that Israel could look back at his prophecy and hear the Lord say no listen listen I'm going to rebuild you you have a future. I'm going to put the tent of David back together. But I'm going to do it in some ways that may surprise you a little bit. In ways that you don't expect. I'm going to bring the nations of the earth into that tent. In fact, God says, that's what I've been doing from the very start. From the very beginning. As James is saying this, the whole council sees that it's true. It's true. There's legitimacy to what James is pointing out here. They've heard from Peter. and They've heard from from Paul and Barnabas. And now they're hearing confirmation through God's word given by James. And the realization lands on the Jerusalem council. Circumcision. Making it a requirement. That's not the answer here. And really when you think about it, whether you're circumcised or not circumcised, it's a moot point because God has already visited the Gentiles died he's already begun to to pour out his spirit on the nation so that people from different tribes and nations and languages are receiving the circumcision of the heart so James says in verse 19 let's not trouble let's not retroactively hit them with legalism when the grace of God has already been given instead of doing that the, the council decides to advise the Gentiles on how they can serve the mission of God. That's why they, they ask things of them in verse 20. Friends, that is the decision of grace. Let's keep reading. We'll start in verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and to the elders of the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with all the martyrs. He sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia. Readers. Since we have heard that some persons, have gone out from us and have troubled you with words unsettling your minds although we gave them no instructions it has seemed good to us having come to one accord to choose men and to send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ we have therefore sent Judas and Silas who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and sexual immorality. If you, keep the, if you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So they were sent off. They went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its importance. Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers, and those who had sent them. For Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord, many others also. So we've seen the threat of grace, we've seen the decision for grace now in these verses that we just read, we're seeing the response to grace. The response to grace. When news reaches Antioch and the letter from Jerusalem is read in their gathering, it says they rejoice. Verse 31, they are overcome with joy and with gratitude because the letter has encouraged them so much. But after weeks of debate disagreement, the church has decided to prize the boundless grace of Jesus Christ above everything else. What could be more exciting than that? What could be more thrilling than to see God's people champion the very grace that has saved you from your sins? You guys, I I want so badly for Emmaus to be a church like this. A church where we rejoice in grace and healing all the time because these things are the norm for us. A church where people who have suffered under the afflictions of legalism can come and find rest in Jesus for the first time in their lives. And if we're going to be a church like that, if we're going to be that for people, then we ourselves need to have hearts that are tender to the good news of grace. Hearts that are easily stirred and affected when the gospel comes up. And it should come up all the time. I love what Ray Orton says. He writes that the doctrine of grace creates a culture of grace where good things happen to bad. A gracious church culture proves that Jesus is the Holy One who forgives sinners the king who befriends his enemies, the genius who counsels failures. Orton continues. He says, Gospel doctrine and gospel culture do not coexist by lucky chance. The doctrine creates and sustains the culture. The way we live together in our churches grows out of what we believe together. So the gospel must land on each of us personally. Friends, the moment this happens, the moment that the gospel lands on each of us personally, is the moment that Emmaus Church becomes the happiest place in town. That's the moment it becomes the place where we have more joy than we know what to do with. Because the grace of God has paid us a visit and it has no plans to leave something in us, should light up when we sing about what Jesus has done, when we sing that we were once his enemies, but now we're seated at his table, and when we thank him for that. It wouldn't be the worst thing in the world if our times of congregational singing were to get maybe just a little bit rowdy. Not because we're trying to be manipulative or theatrical, but because we are genuinely thrilled. We're so thrilled that we cannot contain ourselves. It's just welling up from us and overflowing so that true joy in the Lord takes over the atmosphere of our gatherings. So because that's what I want for us more than anything else, I want to leave you with this exhortation this morning. Don't ever get over the balance of Jesus. Heart, get over it. Never get so used to it that you can come to church and encounter the gospel of grace and just sort of shrug your shoulders. No, church is fine, here, I guess. It never be so. But instead, we must see to it that what Jesus Christ has done, the grace that He has shown, we must see to it that this rekindles and renews our hearts day by day. You can begin to do that now with just a simple prayer. Lord, I confess, my heart has grown cold to your grace. You fill me with fresh affection for your son. For the grace that he has shown me, when you stir me here and now as I wait in your presence? he delights to answer that. He loves it. It thrills him. And yet even though that's God's heart toward us, even though that's true, I would wager there are some in the room here now with the sound of my voice who are accurate. You have reservations. Maybe you're even a little afraid to pray something like that because you're convinced that you've reached a point in your life where for you to pray something like that, it would be too, a little too late. You're already rehearsing the excuses. Well, Pastor, you don't know the story of my life. My life has been just one giant exercise in condemnation. I mean, I can still hear the voice of that old legalistic preacher from my childhood yelling from the pulpit about how angry God is with me. Where I, can, I can still hear the voice of my parents telling me that I'm a good-for-nothing failure and I'll never amount to anything. And you know what? The sins and the failures that have stacked up over the last week, they're all fresh on my mind and I'm, I'm starting to wonder, maybe Mom and Dad were right. Maybe they weren't. Those are the excuses that you're making. I want you to listen to me very carefully. Jesus is not here for some new and improved version of you. He's not sitting there tapping his watch, looking at him, saying, I'm waiting. When are you going to get it together? When are you going to pull yourself together, man? Come on. It's not as further from the truth. No, he is here for the version of you that is sitting right here, right now, in this moment, in this room. That's what he wants. That's what he came for. He has come for the weary and the exhausted, for the burned out, busted up and broken down, for those who can't figure anything out or get anything right, for those who cannot find their way off the treadmill of legalism. For those who have been abused and hurt by the church. For those who wake up every day disappointed in how their life has turned out. He has come for parents who can't stop yelling at their kids. And for kids who lack the will to obey their parents. He has come for people who are addicted to pornography. For those who use food. For those who keep swiping that overused credit card and are drowning in debt. For those who are bitter at their stops. He has come for all who sin and who find themselves in need of a savior this morning. In other words, he's come for you. He's come for me. Just as he finds us today. Yahweh messed up. Boy, is that ever true. He's here for you. Because there's nothing his grace cannot handle. So come to him this morning. Find rest for your weary soul. He's actually calling us to a meal with him. His voice of grace is extending an invitation to the communion table. He's saying, come and take the bread. Take it in your hands. Remember, my body was broken for and then then take the cup take that in your hands and and, and drink it and remember that it was my blood that was shed for you and by the sprinkling of my blood you are made clean, you are cleansed from your sin once and for all and if you receive this bread and this cup by faith in Jesus, he will nourish you friends, His, his grace will come and meet you where you are right now, that's his promise to all who have faith in him which means that if you're not walking by faith, you're not trusting in Jesus Christ, we very respectfully want to ask you not to come. It's not because you're not welcome at church today. Nothing could be further than the truth. Nothing can be further from the truth, that's what trying to We're so glad that you're here if you're not a Christian, we're, we're so pleased that you come to be with us this morning. But we just ask you not to come for the simple reason that there's no grace for you. This is just bread and juice from the grocery store. So instead of coming forward, we want to plead with you to come to Jesus. Come to the one whose voice of grace is ringing out far and wide to the ends of the earth, inviting sinners to come. That voice is speaking here and now today in this place, calling people to come home. Come home. Turn away from their sin. Turn in faith to the one whose yoke is easy, whose burden is light. For all who are under His easy yoke. In a moment, I'll invite you to come down this aisle on this side of the room. We'll begin in the front. We'll move to the back aisle. Come here. Hand sanitizer. The elements are waiting for you here at the table. And take them with you back to your seat. Once we've observed communion, we'll rejoice in the grace of God together with one more song. And we'll be sent with benediction. benediction. Let me pray for us, church. And then we'll come to the table. God, the scriptures tell us that the law came from Moses. Grace and truth have come to us through your son. So we come to you today desiring to receive his easy yoke. The sinful world places so many demands upon us. So often in the Christian life we slip into living under the law when we know full well that we are called to live by grace. Yet every time we settle for that legalism, it only brings more condemnation and shame. So we ask you today, Lord, would you set us free from that? For those who are struggling and weary of condemnation, would you give rest? Would you speak to their hearts and invite them to come and to collapse into the kind arms of Jesus? know the no grace. In this world. For those who are not under his easy yoke, I pray for salvation and grace through faith that you draw unto yourself more, even now, as we pray in the sins of Church, let's come Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.